Welcome to this episode of Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast giving you advice, tips and tools for getting the most out of your research. I'm Thomas Warwick and today I'll be talking to you about five controls for immunofluorescence. Immunofluorescence staining is a popular and extremely powerful detection method. However, achieving publication quality immunofluorescence or fluorescent antibody staining can get tricky. It's therefore important to ensure you have the right controls. So why, specifically, might we need controls for immunofluorescence? In immunofluorescence, colourful images are so compelling that it's hard to imagine the information they contain could ever be wrong. However, experienced scientists know that to trust staining, you need controls showing that it's specific. For example, to know that staining is real and not due to autofluorescence or non-specific staining, you need to include no primary antibody or isotype controls in your experiment. Including controls make your data interpretation easier and helps narrow down the list of issues when troubleshooting. For example, when you get no signal. So what can different controls for immunofluorescence tell you? The type of control you use will depend on the purpose of your immunofluorescence experiment. For example, if you're trying to verify knockout cell lines, it's important to establish the specificity of your antibody. So let's go through five types of control and what they tell you. Number one, positive control. This is the one control for immunofluorescence you should always use in your experiments, as it's crucial to determine whether or not something went wrong during your staining. A positive control can be any tissue or cells where the protein of interest is known to be expressed in abundance. If you do not see staining in your positive control, you know something went wrong with the staining protocol. Number two, omitting the primary antibody control. Incubating the sample with an antibody dilution buffer without the primary antibody will reveal if the observed signal is due to the non-specific binding of the secondary antibody in the tissue or cell sample. Sometimes secondary antibodies form aggregates and can be seen as debris in the sample. This can happen due to improper storage conditions. Therefore, always store your antibodies as specified by the manufacturer and ensure you store them in small aliquots to avoid degradation from frequent freeze-thaw cycles. Enquire with the vendor to determine if your secondary antibodies are pre-adsorbed. Pre-adsorption is an additional processing step where the secondary antibodies are passed through a column containing immobilised serum proteins from potentially cross-reactive species. Using pre-adsorbed secondary antibodies reduces the risk of cross-reactivity with non-specific targets. Number three, absorption control. This is the control where you incubate your sample with an immune-depleted primary antibody. It demonstrates the specificity of your primary antibody and you should see no signal from the immune-depleted primary antibody. Immune-depleted antibodies may be produced by overnight incubation of the antibody at four degrees centigrade with an excess of the immunogen. Although highly recommended, this control is not as popular due to limitations in obtaining purified antigens slash immunogens. This control is more reliable when the immunogen is a peptide rather than a protein. Number four, isotype control. This is incubation of the sample with a non-immune antibody of the same isotype. For example, IgG1, IgG2A and IgM. And make sure you perform this incubation at the same concentration and conditions as your primary antibody. This control checks that non-specific interactions of the primary antibody do not cause the observed staining. Any background staining you observe with this control should be minimal and distinct from your specific staining. This control is useful when working with monoclonal primary antibodies. Number five, omitting the secondary antibody control. Samples like brain, lungs and colon cells, those rich in elastin, collagen and lipofusion, tend to be high in autofluorescence. Omitting the secondary antibody helps determine if the observed fluorescence is coming from background autofluorescence. If you find that you get an autofluorescence, don't worry, there are some things you can do to reduce it. Check out a corresponding online article for a link to that resource. 
And remember, always keep a detailed record to ensure consistent performance, as any variation will alter the reproducibility of your staining. It sounds obvious, but immunofluorescent staining is a long process with many steps. It's crucial to optimize every step of the protocol before you decide to generate data from your sample material. So that's it for immunofluorescence controls and what they do. Check out the episode description for links to related articles and resources, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get more help and advice from mentors at your benchside. Are you always on the go, but still seeking valuable insights to advance your research? Well, look no further than Listen In, the podcast from Bite Size Bio that offers the benefits of webinars in a portable format. With webinars featuring leading researchers and commercial specialists discussing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 and microscopy. With Listen In, you can tap into their expertise and drive your research project forward efficiently and productively, no matter where you are. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Listen In in your podcast app to subscribe.